Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can follow me at Ben Lewis SN590. You can follow Mike at McIntyre Tennis. We're also on Instagram. Well, Mike, with the current climate in the United States and here in Canada over racial injustice and police brutality, uh, this week I think it was necessary to talk about some of these uncomfortable topics and this week I had a chance uh, to speak with Canadian tennis player Francoise Abanda of Montreal. Yeah I caught your interview and uh, couldn't be more timely and more important to discuss these issues and Francoise gave a, a very emotional um, you know state of, of affairs in both Montreal where she's based and, uh, and worldwide and uh, also this week um, before we get to that in terms of some tennis talk, we uh, also catch up with a reporter who would have been in the thick of things at the French Open in Paris. I spoke with uh, everybody's favorite Yorkshire tennis reporter, Jonathan Pinfield, who has developed quite the following over the last two years based on his rapport with Alexander Zverev. So we do sat, chat some, some tennis as well, but obviously first we've got to start with the current climate and uh, talk about the protests, trying to shed light on this very important topic of uh, anti-black racism that has really spiked in both the United States and uh, elsewhere around the world. And, and we're not immune to that in Canada either, of course. Yeah, I think that's been the, the clear message that this is not simply a United States problem. We wouldn't have protests that we're seeing right now uh, in Canada in major cities like uh, Toronto, Ottawa, and certainly in Western cities like Vancouver, um, if, if this weren't a problem in a lot of people's eyes um, in Canada as well. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had black friends growing up in Kingston, Ontario, who've had unfortunate run-ins with police in terms of being racially profiled. And uh, I think you made a good point in the sense that I think now in, in 2020, it's not good enough to just say, well, I'm not racist. I, yeah, I think there's, a bigger, there's a bigger picture. And, 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 you know, what are people outside of the black community doing to stand up and say that uh, enough is enough? The systemic racism that exists in the, in the U.S. is rampant. The systemic racism that exists in Canada is, is just as prevalent in, in some places. We're not immune to it, even though people, you know, kind of think that Canada is this ideal sort of uh, a paradise where everyone just gets along and, and hold hands and sings Kumbaya. And that's, that's not the case. Um, and uh, I mean, look at how we, we treat, um, you know, our indigenous population. And, and, and that's been going on since, you know, our country was founded in 1867. So there's lots of room for improvement up here as well. And, um, and it does seem like people are, are getting this, this bigger picture now that it's, uh, it's not just enough to say, well, I'm not racist, so I've, I've done my part. Uh, you know, we've got to join that conversation, find ways to, to interact with the black community and, and find out ways that, that we can help and, and do our part too. And, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful, uh, and I hope I'm not you know, naive, but I'm hopeful that it, it does seem that uh, people are, are starting to take note in, in larger numbers. And, and uh, and everybody, myself included, can can do better in terms of being better educated, and uh, and do more to be proactive to contribute to to ending and uh, and working towards a conclusion uh, positively um, when it comes to systemic racism, both here in Canada and the United States and elsewhere. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I, I don't necessarily consider myself an activist, uh, but for those who follow me on, on Twitter, I think the past week and a half, I, I have been swept up 
by everything because it's just hard not to. And I, I feel like it, it's almost an injustice not to share things that bother you, not to talk about things that bother you because if I just kind of keep my mouth shut and in the words of LeBron James, like we won't just shut up and dribble. And I think that's sometimes a problem with the tennis community in that it is such an individualized sport that sometimes we don't always hear from from voices uh in these regards and uh, so much kudos to naomi osaka coco goff especially 16 years old and to be so outspoken at, at this age and not just outspoken but like very wise behind you know beyond her years uh in what she's saying and getting involved at this age uh, I, I think she could be a, a huge pillar uh for the tennis community for for years to come in that type of voice and we've we've seen in the past venus and serena williams uh lending their voice to these issues prior i, I think we need some voices though who aren't part of the black community themselves yeah, Coco Goff, who we're still getting to know, really, uh, had no idea um, that she was uh, obviously so uh, able to um, get involved in something where, where she's not even, you know, legally able to vote yet in the United States, nor was she able to uh, to do the same here in Canada. But very impressed with her stepping up and 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 using her voice to get people involved. And Naomi Osaka is not that much older, really, when you think about it. Uh, And for someone who admittedly is not always comfortable speaking in public, um, she's done a fantastic job as well to shed light on on what's going on and and making herself a presence at many of these protests as well. Um, So it has been great to see many people in the tennis community come together to uh, support this. The uh, the video that Francis Tiafo put out, um, rackets down, hands up with many of the the uh, the top um, black tennis players, male and female, was very powerful and moving as well. Um, I, I I don't want to point fingers because you never know what people are doing behind the scenes in ways that aren't necessarily out there on social media. But I was a little bit taken aback that uh, the big three of Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal were um, pretty quiet and 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 non vocal on things unless I missed something. And I think that was um, definitely a, a disappointment for me for for all three of them, but uh, overall to focus on the positive, so many voices that are that are now speaking up both inside the, the black community and outside of it to show their support and solidarity. So trying to focus on the positives there as much as we can. Yeah, definitely. And that, that is a fair critique uh, of the big three uh, that to, to the best of my knowledge, all, all they have done, they, they did share the blackout Tuesday uh, that, that everybody was sharing last week. Federer, Nadal and Djokovic all, all did a post at one point, but I, I didn't see um, that many words or uh, ideas shared or, or contributions that I'm aware of. I, I can't speak to anything that would have happened behind the scenes, but um, they are like, a lot of others that we haven't heard from, I suppose, uh, which I, I wish would change, obviously. And uh, kudos to hockey. Uh, I will mention they just initiated a diversity alliance today, this week. So I think that's a big deal in Canada. Um, and and the idea behind that is to combat racism and intolerance in that sport. Uh, I think that could be something that we could see across all sports. Yeah, and hockey, and I come from a hockey background. Uh, hockey's definitely a place that needs to do better. Mm-hmm. And uh, even before the events of the past couple of weeks, uh, have had a, a year with uh, many people speaking out about the inherent racism that exists in the locker rooms and, and in that sport. So uh, they've got a long way to go, but um, they are taking some steps, which is which is a starting point. Anyone else looking to take steps? Um, we do have a couple of places that, that we can suggest 
that have a Canadian angle on this. And one is blackyouth.ca, which is a Canadian organization um, that promotes access to professional, culturally appropriate support for black youth and their families. Uh, and the other one is is here in Toronto, Ben, if you want to mention uh, the, the other one that we'd like to talk about. Yeah, the Jane Finch Community Tennis Organization, also another great option, tennis-related. And uh, they have a presence on Facebook as well, but uh, just a community organization which gets rackets into into the hands of underprivileged uh, black youth, uh, gives them an opportunity to play the sport. Uh, I know it might be obviously a bit more difficult now given COVID-19, but this is a great organization that's been operating for years and with the support of Tennis Canada. So I hope they can continue and grow as well uh, once this pandemic is behind us. But uh, as I said at the top, Francoise Abanda, I had a chance to speak with her and uh, she gave her perspective on a lot of these issues. She's been active as well living in Montreal and, uh, you know, being a part of those protests. So uh, without further ado, here's my interview with a Canadian tennis player, Francoise Abanda. Hey guys, this is Ben Lewis for Matchpoint Canada and happy to be joined on the podcast this week by Canadian tennis player, Francoise Abanda. Francoise, thanks so much for joining us this week. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, We've spoken to you on Matchpoint Canada before. My colleague Mike has on this podcast. And I know he's talked to you a bit about racism in tennis and some of the experiences you've had. And uh, given what's going on in the United States and and Canada as well, I I figured I I would start just getting your perspective and uh, some of the protests we're seeing across the United States in our country towards racial injustices and, and police brutality. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say, like, I, I think uh, what happened in the U.S. touched the whole world, you know, not just uh, colored people or black people. I think it's just uh, um, a human issue. And then I think everybody was touched. So I uh, I, I feel re- like the whole week I was feeling really bad for him. And I kept reading and just being so involved in that situation. So yeah, I think it's just uh, really unfortunate that these things happen uh, in 2020. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, I don't have words like to describe, but I think it's really bad and like we need to do better as a, as a world in general. And uh, for you, you're, you're based in Montreal. Are, are you getting involved in, in protests? And, and maybe what, what would you recommend to others just to try and get involved and make a difference? Well, first of all, I think other people that want to join the movement, I think, first of all, you have to recognize your white privilege. You know, if you're a white person and you don't know how to help or you don't know what's going on, I think it's important to acknowledge what's going on and and understand the issue before just joining the movement and not really knowing what's the problem. So it's good to educate yourself on it and ask your your friends and your uh, circles that are maybe affected by this issue and ask questions and try to be involved and and not and not stay ignorant to these types of issue because um, every voice is very important and um, a lot more than people think it is. And uh, obviously, we, we've seen members of the tennis community get involved right now, which is nice to see. Naomi Osaka, I know, has been very outspoken and taking part in protests. Coco Goff, she's just 16 years old and, and getting involved. Is that inspiring yeah. to see for you? And, or, or would you maybe like to see a bit more from the tennis community as well? 
yeah, I think it's it's very uh, inspiring to see. But to be honest, at the beginning, I was like not seeing a lot of tennis players really like standing up. But I think no, no, Noemi Osaka took the wheel and she uh, opened up uh, this topic. And then afterwards, you saw a lot of players coming out. But um, I know Sasha Berkey was involved and Patrick Maratuglu, the coach of Serena Williams, said um, a lot of things about that problem. So it's good to see like people are trying to, you know, um, talk about it and open up the topic. It is really taboo and it's difficult to talk about it because it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So, yeah. It's it's obviously different um, just watching videos online from actually being there in person to, to get a sense of what some of these rallies are like. And I know you've, I think, attended a few in Montreal. What has kind of the vibe and presence been like? Is it hostile? Is it welcoming? What's it like being there? Yeah, I myself uh, attended a, my first protest ever in Montreal last week. So I decided just to go for myself. I went by myself, to be honest, because I just felt like it's something I needed to do. And and um, it's an issue that I personally was affected. So it's, it was good for me to go on the field and kind of see uh, the vibe and the dynamic. And it was a great walk, um, very peaceful towards the end a few little things, but um, overall, like I was really happy with my experience and I encourage people to go out there and if it's a cause that you want to defend, to go out there and, and walk. I think everybody's welcome and and I just want people to not feel like, oh, well, I'm not black, I'm not involved. No, like everybody should go if you want to go and not feel any type of way because of any anything blocking you from going. And uh, not not to get, I guess, too personal, but, uh, you know, during this time, at least for me personally, over the past week or so, I, I've been speaking with a few of my black friends, colleagues and, and stuff like that. And they've shared. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, that's that's like the bare minimum. That's what it's all about. Right. And I, I really think it is the bare minimum that, that we can do. But, uh, you know, they, they share with me certain experiences uh, that that I personally never have had to even think about when it comes to, you know, someone, one of my friends telling me uh, it was reported to a cop that he was following people in the mall, which was, of course, completely untrue. I mean, it's, it's an experience I would never have before. Have, have you had any of those types of run-ins with police or, or getting profiled at all, if, if you're uh, comfortable sharing? Yeah, you know, honestly, um, like, I think we've talked a lot about George Floyd and this is the movement that happened, but that, that made the whole movement happen. It's George Floyd. So I don't, I don't want to talk about me too much, but like, to be honest, when you look at the police profiling and how they target black people often, like this is not the first time. And I guess it's the first, one of the first few times that people are like really taking a stand and, they're realizing how wrong it is but to be honest like we this is a reality and people um people might not know so for me personally it's not like i'm shocked but like it's touching to see people are finally waking up and they're trying to understand and they're they're open-minded so that's what i'm most pleased about and i also want to say like there's also some i'll talk for quebec but there's also some french canadians here that are 
trying to help and trying to do better. So it's important to acknowledge these people that are trying to stand up and help and they're, it could be personally or donate or try to be on the field or ask questions. Some people are really trying to make a difference. So it's really nice to see that. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it can't just be uh, the black community getting involved. Uh, it really has to be uh, everybody. And as you said, it, it really is a human issue, I think, uh, affecting the, the world. Um, for you, I, I'd love to talk a bit about your tennis because, um, you know, the, the world was hit by a pandemic and uh, the tennis world, like really the sporting world was was put on pause. But it, it felt like you were playing some good tennis in, in 2020, just results wise. I know you're playing uh, on the ITF circuit. You had a nice semifinal run in Kentucky. Uh, did you feel like you were kind of making inroads playing playing your best level again? Yeah, I was playing really good at the beginning of the year. I was coming out of a shoulder injury, so um, I'm happy with the way I started the year. And I think I made a couple of quarterfinals, maybe a semifinal in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, had some good wins against McNally or Buskova. That was also a good win. So um, I was hoping to keep up the momentum and maybe try to make it for French Open qualities. But um, yeah, unfortunately, the pandemic came, so everything stopped. But yeah, my last tournament was Vegas. And then I, I flew home and just been home since. So now we're, I'm just waiting to see. Uh, I think ITF and the WT is making an, an announcement on June 15th. So maybe we'll we'll know more about what's to come. I I wonder because, uh, you know, obviously so many of these tournaments, I think for the summer schedule and into the fall are are completely up in the air. Just for you personally, would you feel comfortable at a stage like this uh, in 2020 traveling uh, around the world, whether it be, you know, to Europe, Asia, somewhere else to to play a tennis tournament right now? Or do do you think it's something that maybe has to wait until next year? Yeah, personally, I don't feel comfortable and my parents also don't feel comfortable. Just when I leave my house, they're like, wear your mask, do this, wash your hands, da, da, da. So, like, imagine flying, you know, it's for sure. Uh, I think it changed the mentality of a lot of people and now people are kind of scared to to go out there. So, yeah, I don't know how everything is going to go. But, um, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's, it's crazy. Like you would never think a pandemic would happen like that. So I'm, I don't know. I don't know what to say. And then uh, now the whole world is talking about George Floyd. So it's just so many events that, um, that are very shopping, shocking. And mm-hmm. personally, like I was so involved into George Floyd. I'm just going back into that topic, but like I talked about it so much that like I'm exhausted, you know, like I had yeah. so many, um not arguments but like conversation and people are writing me they want to know my opinion and um, so many media trying to talk to me and like i it's becoming a lot so yeah the pandemic george floyd it is a lot like it's a lot yeah, it's certainly uh, a year in history. I think that uh, we won't soon forget. Uh, I think a colleague of mine put it well in, in terms of George Floyd and that in, uh, incident, saying he's sick and tired of being sick and tired, basically, yeah. which, which I thought was a good way of, of framing it. Um, so your, your last tournament, as you mentioned, was 
was in Vegas and then obviously the pandemic hit. Did you come straight home to Montreal? And, and what was that adjustment period like for you to just get used to kind of being holed up in quarantine like everybody else? Yeah, well, I've been home, to be honest. I didn't really practice for a few weeks, maybe more. But I started recently. So, um, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. I'm just here. Uh, I'm practicing at the Federation in Montreal at Tennis Canada. And it's very restricted and um, very restricted uh, conditions to practice. So, yeah, I don't know. It's... uh, it is what it is. Yeah. Were, were you able to keep up, I guess, like fitness training before you could get back on court, just like to keep everything in shape sort of thing? Yeah, I was able to train. Um, I was able to do some fitness at home, but no gym. All the gyms are, are closed. Mm-hmm. Um, no uh, tennis. So it's been challenging and it's not like ideal tra- training conditions. And to get back into you know, competing, it's going to be tough, you know, because a lot of months without practicing is, it's going to show. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the players like uh, recover from that. Yeah, that, uh, that segues uh, well into my next question. And we, we've talked about this on the podcast of which players do, do you think would maybe do a little better coming out of a long break like this uh maybe do a little worse do you think it would be sort of the the younger players having the advantage or, or more veteran experienced players uh for me i think uh talented the talented players are the ones that are going to benefit from it the ones that um you know hit the ball naturally and have that easy touch I think it's going to be beneficial for them because not all tennis players have it naturally some tennis players require a lot of training and a lot of hours and matches to be able to feel good in their game me personally like um, a lot of people seems to say I have a lot of talent and I feel like it comes naturally for me so I don't I'm not the type of player that's going to train like so many hours to be able to fail my shots so maybe in that way, it'll help me. But I think fitness-wise, everybody, like tennis is so fitness. It's so physical nowadays that you really need to be fit. So I think um, the fitness is going to really be important. And the ones that are fitter might, might do better uh, coming out of this. But the, nat- the natural talent. So when, uh, when you get back uh, competing, we're going to see you dominate, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> oh, I hope so. I really hope that uh, my natural talent helps. But um, at the end of the day, like, you have to put the hours in and, mm-hmm. and do the work and you'll get the results. But it'll be interesting to see because it's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing that happens. So yeah. who knows? What's going to happen? I heard they're trying to maybe, uh, uh, you know, have the U.S. Open and French Open happening. Mm-hmm. So or is it going to be like, are you going to have to pick French or U.S. Open? How's the ranking going to go? Are they going to maintain the points? Those are all question marks. That, question that- marks. Yeah, would would you be in a spot if the French Open? I I know they they've scheduled for the back end of September into October. If it does happen, do you know right now with your ranking, are you in a spot yet to play for qualifying? No, I'm not because okay. it's twenty. 
you have to be 220. So we don't know, but from what I heard, the ranking is they're making changes. Okay. Um, um, I think we're all keeping our points as of right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't know. I really don't know. And they have to come out with um, answers. So and, we'll see uh, what they say. Yeah. And uh, last question. Have you been in touch with fellow tennis players during, during this time at all and uh, kind of keeping up with the rest of the tour? Yeah, I have. I've been in touch with my Canadian tennis players, um, but not too much, to be honest, because it's becoming repetitive. Like, there's nothing going on, so not much to say. But, yeah, I'm talking to a few players here and there, but, yeah, nothing crazy. Sounds good. Well, Francois, thanks so much uh, for, for joining the podcast, and uh, I appreciate you. you lending uh, your voice to, to all these issues. And it seems like it's the thing at the forefront right now. So it's really important. There you have it, my interview with Canadian tennis player Francois Sabanda, who's obviously um, good to share her time with us and, and weigh in on these important subjects. Yeah, Francois really put things into perspective uh, from a, a Canadian angle and a tennis player's perspective. And, you know, she mentioned at the beginning of your interview, it's a, it's a human issue that touches everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, for people that want to join the movement, it's important for us to recognize that there is a white privilege. And uh, we've got to reach out and, and ask our friends who are affected uh, by this, uh, what ways can, can we help and, and get involved. And it was inspiring to, to listen to her talk. We've spoken to her before on the podcast, more so about, you know, her own uh, dealings, personal dealings with racism growing up as a junior tennis player and professional tennis player, but she definitely helped sort of uh, tie things into the bigger picture here, talking about how, you know, for her even, it was the first protest she ever attended in Montreal and how she went by herself. And I was kind of moved by that, that she chose to go to the first protest alone to experience it and, and take it in and feel that vibe and dynamic and, and get in touch with with uh, what she was feeling and, and come to terms with, with that. And, uh, you know, it's great to see in Canada that these protests are, are happening and, and they seem to be very, very peaceful and everyone united. Our, our prime minister, whether you love him or hate him, was, was also there uh, kneeling and, and showing his solidarity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, clearly you're not getting that uh, with our neighbors to the south, which is a whole other, you know, can of worms. But um, it, it did seem very positive here in Canada. And, uh, and it was great of Francois to, to take the time out because I'm sure she's been inundated with media requests over the past week or two and, uh, and, and really nice to, to catch up and, and hear her take on things with, with your interview there, Ben. Yeah, yeah, it was great to hear from her. And she, she made the point of wanting white allies in this fight. And as, as you said, it being a human issue, it can't just be the black community. I think it has to be everybody. And uh, she she clarified that well. And, uh, you know, we also spoke about her dealing with the, the pandemic and kind of when everything actually was halted for her personally as a tennis player. She had, she had been playing quite good tennis. Um, we've seen her, she was a top junior player, um, got as high as number four in the juniors. And I think expectations were, were quite high for her at the time. And she's dealt with different injuries, like a nagging shoulder injury. But uh, before everything was stopped, she was playing some nice tennis on the IT, ITF circuit with some wins over, over quality players like uh, Marie Boscova and a win over Katie McNally. So it, it looked like things were certainly for her career trending in a great direction as well. Yeah, she's had it tough on the court in recent years. I mean, she's just inside the top 300 in the rankings right now. 
Her career high was almost three years ago where she nearly cracked the top 100. Mm -hmm. But as, as you mentioned, that shoulder injury has really been something. It's, it's not new. This is something she's dealt with over the years. I was speaking with, I believe it was Tom Tebbett last year at the Tevlin Challenger where, where Frankie was playing and, and had to pull out with that shoulder injury after her first round win. And uh, he mentioned to me that she just hasn't been the same since that shoulder injury really popped up. And, uh, and the serve hasn't been able to get back to what it used to be like. Um, so it's been tough for her. But as you mentioned, 15 and 5, pretty good numbers, win-loss numbers on, on the year in 2020. And that win over Boskova, I mean, she was the number one seed in that ITF event. And, and we watched her. You and I make the, the semifinals, Boskova, in Toronto at the Rogers Cup, taking yeah. the first set of her semifinal match off Serena Williams. So for uh, Amanda to get a, a victory like that must have been so encouraging. And, uh, of course, like many players that had momentum swinging their way, that was halted back in late February, early March. But uh, we do hope when she gets back on the court that the shoulder is uh, cooperating and that we can see her, uh, you know, get back to her best, which, uh, you know, she's only 23 years old. So that is encouraging in that sense. She's got lots of time on her side. Yeah, yeah, she certainly does. Uh, in in an alternate universe, if things were normal in 2020, which they obviously weren't, uh, this conversation would be happening a day after Roland Garros. Now, Roland Garros still is in our calendar, technically, and, and set to begin September 20th. Uh, fingers crossed for that. Uh, my question, before we get to your interview with, with Jonathan Pinfield, uh, do you think... Uh, if if we took out this pandemic, we had a regular tennis season, would we be talking right now about Rafael Nadal being tied with Roger Federer in a Grand Slam count? Wouldn't we? I mean, wouldn't <laughs> we be talking about that? Um, it'd be so shocking for it not to happen, although at some point he's going to have to hand over the uh, the title of King of Clay to somebody else, right. in all likelihood Dominic Team, who's... Um, really done well these past couple of years himself, including wins, you know, multiple wins over Rafa on clay. But uh, I think with the record being so close to Rafa's uh, reach to tie Roger Federer, uh, just extra motivation. Um, but as you've mentioned, we won't know uh, until, well, perhaps we won't know this year, but if we do, it won't be till September, October. And I think that totally changes the dynamic and will totally change even how Rafa feels entering the event. Uh, the, the weather, the, the air pressure, the temperatures, uh, the way the balls are going to fly off the dirt, the way the clay is going to even be put together. Yep. It, it's going to feel so different from when it's normally held in the month of May. And as we, you and I talked about last week, Rafa's not going to have all those clay court tournaments leading up for him to find his best rhythm and, and work himself into his his, you know, optimal um, playing form on the surface. So if you're looking to take him out at Roland Garros, uh, this would be the best opportunity for someone like Team or Djokovic or, you know, maybe a couple other names that we could throw in there uh, as, as potential threats. This would be their best chance to take him down because he's not going to feel that same level of comfort um, coming into a, a September edition of the event. 
Yeah, yeah, I would uh, certainly agree with you there. Uh, we're used to so much parody on the women's side, obviously. And uh, I wonder, I suppose, if we would see another fresh face, I guess, capturing a Grand Slam. Uh, if Roland Garros were to have wrapped up over the weekend, we obviously saw the new face and Sophia Cannon win the, winning the Australian Open. But it was pretty hard to gauge and hard to tell who the standout players, I guess, were from this calendar year, because it was short. So Fia Kennan had the incredible Australian Open. She did win another small tournament. But to me, there wasn't one or two players who was really like standing out in, in any kind of dominant form. And we wouldn't have had a lead up play season to, to base this off of either. So it's, it's pretty difficult yeah. today. And, and in terms of Kennan, uh, and nothing to take away from her Aussie Open victory, but We've seen so many women who've won their first slam in recent months and years, uh, and they haven't necessarily been able to follow that up because it's a whole new type of pressure mm -hmm. um, that they're dealing with and levels of expectations, and they're no longer flying under the radar in some sense. So um, it would have been the exact opposite of, of the men's tournament in terms of predicting or talking about favorites because there would have been so many. But I think Serena Williams and Simona Halep, to me, would have been the two names, if anyone you're going to look to, have that prior experience of, of winning there and, and Halep making three finals there yeah. and, uh, and Serena hoisting that trophy as well multiple times um, and, and being so hungry to get that, uh, that all-important number, uh, oh gosh, where's my math, 23, 24? Um, yes, <laughs> 24 to tie. Thank you. Um, so, I, I mean, I would have put them ahead of the others, but, but it wouldn't have surprised me if, you know, one of another – gosh, 12 to 20 women were, uh, were standing on the final day if the tournament had happened. Yeah, no kidding. Well, uh, the guest who had a chance to speak with this week um, kind of made a name for himself at Roland Garros, uh, sort of developing a bromance with uh, a men's player, Sasha Zverev, uh, and his all-too-familiar Yorkshire accent. And Jonathan Pinfield's been a guest uh, on our show, I think, three or maybe four times now with this episode. Uh, so what did you kind of cover before uh, you throw to this interview with with him. Yeah, I mean, talking with Jonathan's always a treat. I just feel like he's someone that I would get along with so well. And we've never met, but if, if we ever did, yeah. I feel like we'd get along really well throwing back, you know, a couple of pints at the at the pub or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, he's just such a friendly person. And, and the fact that he translates that into his, you know, working relationship with players is just a credit to him. Because I think for many of us, uh, there's, I don't know, maybe a, an awkwardness or a level of discomfort when you're trying to connect with uh, an athlete that you, you don't necessarily know. And, and certainly when you're new in the industry, it doesn't always come easy to people, but he just walked right in there in Paris two years ago. And it was just, he was being himself, you know, like he's able to be professional, but he's also able to have fun at what he does and, and share his love of tennis and the sport with the players that he interviews. And, and that helps them let their guard down. And that's what we talked about is, is how he's got that ability to let players just ease up, speak comfortably and so many good things come from that. Like he's gotten so many great answers and quotes that other media members obviously pick up and then you see them splashed across the headlines, but they came from conversations that Jonathan was having because he's just got that gift, that ability that you can't teach. You know, you can't pick that up in journalism school or whatnot. I think either you have it or you don't have it. And he's very comfortable in his own skin and, and that just comes across in press. So it was great for me to talk to him again. Um, uh, he's certainly a, a friend of, of the podcast, which is why we've had him on so many times. So uh, here he is for the third or fourth time, as you mentioned, Jonathan Pinfield from Yorkshire. 
Really happy to be joined right now by a, a recurring guest we've had here on Matchpoint Canada. Definitely someone I would call a friend of our podcast. Uh, many of you know him on social media as at tweets by JP. Uh, Jonathan Pinfield, our favorite tennis reporter from Yorkshire. Welcome back to Matchpoint Canada. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Good to see you again. You too, my friend. How you been keeping uh, through all of this these past uh, three months? Yeah, not too bad. I think I'm pretty fortunate. Uh, the situation in the UK isn't too great right now. Uh, I've been working from home the last uh, 10 weeks, uh, as well as working for Life Sports FM. I also work for a local radio station, so I'm just making sure that all the uh, programmes that our presenters record at home are getting onto the airwaves, which they are more often than not. So for the main part at home, trying to get a bit of daily exercise. Haven't picked up a, a racket in anger yet, but uh, anyone who's ever seen me attempt to play tennis would say that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, they'd say the same about me too. I went out for the first time a few days ago and uh, it, it wasn't pretty. So I was, uh, I was happy there was another couple of people waiting after 30 minutes to get me, get me out of there. Um, today's Sunday, uh, and it would have been the finals at uh, Roland Garros, which is, if not your favorite, certainly one of your favorite tennis tournaments. How much have you missed being there and, and watching that fantastic tournament unfold over the past two weeks, as we would have been doing? Well, I think everyone misses tennis, you know, whatever it is on, on the Grand Slams are the highlights of the year. Living in Europe, the notion of uh, being able to travel to Australia uh, is slightly beyond me. Uh, but the possibility to go to Paris uh, is something that's been made possible for me over the last couple of years. And as you've just said there, to think that, you know, the recent days, you just think, wow, a couple of years ago, last year, I was watching this player, I was chatting to that player, I was doing this, I was doing that. Yeah, it brings back some fond memories. And I think. Uh, doesn't matter whether you're a player, a journalist, a fan, just someone who loves tennis. We're all missing it right now. We don't have all the answers, but certainly lots of people asking lots of questions. It's, uh, it's interesting because uh, I, I don't think one would normally equate someone from Yorkshire with the French Open, but you've developed certainly a, a rapport and a relationship with, with the tournament over the past two years. And it all started, for those who aren't familiar, or at least uh, to the best of my knowledge, with your first press conference with Alexander Sasha Zverev and you guys just seem to hit it off right away and, and have a connection and and you brought out I think a side of him that a lot of people hadn't necessarily seen up to that point. Um, is it fair to say that the French Open uh, occupies a very special place and always will in, in your heart because of what happened there two years ago? Yeah absolutely and uh, it, was, it was a special moment when you're working there you're trying to watch a bit of tennis, you're trying to attend uh, news conferences, you're trying to make sure that your colleagues back home get the audio that you've recorded, and then you're on to the next one. So the uh, incident that you talk about with Sasha Zverev, where I asked him a question, he didn't quite understand it, it was lost in translation a bit. As I said uh, quite a few times, uh, I like to think we made it up through the universal language of uh, tennis and love, but... Uh, yeah, it came out of that, not thinking too much of it, but quite soon it built up a momentum all of its own. And after the, a one-off exchange, which was uh, just some jovial banter, we certainly built up a, a big rapport throughout Roland Garros uh, that year. And 
through the subsequent times I've had the opportunity to interview him. So, yeah, special memories uh, and, and special times. And, uh, yeah, something that you can't necessarily plan. Not expected, as I said, at the time it happened. I didn't think too much of it. It was just on to the next news conference. But, yeah, 24 hours late and uh, had my 15 minutes of fame. And uh, that gives me the opportunity to do things like this now. So I'm uh, very grateful for it, absolutely. Did you have anything special planned for the, the third installment if you had been there this year? And, and I mean, hopefully it could still happen in the fall, but anything in particular, or, or like you said, you can't really create these moments. You just sort of see how things would evolve naturally. Yeah, I mean, in terms of how I approach these things, sometimes I do think long and hard about what I can ask a particular player. Uh, sometimes uh, it's almost like divine intervention. Some things come to me. Some things work, some things don't, but you know, I'm always prepared to roll the dice. And the incident with Sasha Zone was quite interesting because initially the story was very much about an issue that was lost or a chat that was lost in translation, but very quick in terms of tennis fans, in their hearts, it was seen as the emergence of a bromance. And so the story flipped its on its head from do these guys understand each other to is there a bit of banter, is there a bit of flirting, is there a bromance going on here? So I actually realised in terms of the tone of my questions and in terms of how Sasha was responding to that, that's what I needed to do to strike up that rapport with him. Thankfully it worked, so there was certainly a bit of planning in terms of what went on on some of the subsequent questions that year, but a lot of it is just the first thing that pops into my head. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. So it's just plain daft. But yeah, sometimes you get some good answers. Sometimes you fall flat on your face, but you've just got to dust yourself down and uh, crack on with it, as we say in Yorkshire. Well, sometimes you strike gold and it's it's so worth it. And in the media, it's kind of expected that there's a certain level, obviously, of professionalism and an unbiased approach to our work. It's not like you're in the stands cheering for Zverev when he's winning points and whatnot. But you know, I've become conditioned myself to, to not clapping when I'm at, a, you know, a tennis event anyways, which is the sport that I cover, um, and not outwardly or, or even really internally feeling too much bias towards a player as I did when I was a fan. Even a few years ago, I attended the U.S. Open with my dad just for fun, the two of us, sort of a father-son bonding experience. And I still, even without press credentials, couldn't find myself clapping at any match. I'm just so conditioned to it. But that being said, um, you know, there, there are moments where you uh, develop a certain bond with a player, uh, in your case, obviously, with Sasha through your, your press conferences. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that either, is there? No, I think it's a bit about having that mutual respect. You know, there's definitely a line, there's, a, there's an air of professionalism that you've got to adopt. But, you know, you do have a, a genuine affection that you build up between yourself and certain players. Uh, there are other players where you just don't seem to be able to click or you don't get the responses that you want from them. And I think that's just an accepted part. And I think colleagues who I work alongside at Roland Garros understand, for example, the relationship that I've built up with Sasha Zverev. They're looking for angles there for their stories as well. So, yeah, it is a balance. There are moderators in each of the news conference making sure that there is that professional respect between yourselves uh, and the competitors. Uh, and I like to think I haven't trodden too much over that line. But I certainly uh, 
tiptoed uh, on it on a tightrope, walked in it once or twice, I suppose. Well, I don't know if it would work for everybody, but it certainly works for you. And and one thing I've always enjoyed about your coverage is you you bring that air of levity into the press room, which, let's be honest, it can be a pretty stale environment sometimes if it's just the same questions about forehands and backhands and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I think you put athletes at ease. I think you make them really comfortable and it allows for them to reveal a side of themselves that their fans, and this is really what it's what it's all about, is the fans who are reading or listening uh, to the press conferences and the transcripts, uh, you're showing a different side of these players that that people don't necessarily know at. And it's it's not just humor. It's also you got that Yorkshire accent that certainly plays to your advantage. Um, and, and you've got a knowledge of the sport. And I think that's very important, too, that it's not just the accent and, and a little bit of you know playfulness, but you know the sport and players respect that from you as well. There's got to be a little room for some humor in, in journalism, too, to help us get these these moments that otherwise would, would go completely unnoticed and, and we wouldn't know players except for the X's and O's on the court. Well, it's really kind of you to say, thanks very much. I'm going to scribble that down and use that as an endorsement somewhere. <laughs> I think. But yeah, I think there's a couple of things from my point of view. I think you've got to play to your strengths as a journalist. Um, you know, it's got to be an extension of your personality. One of the biggest criticisms, uh, you know, of, of modern day tennis is that we don't see the players express their personalities enough on or off the car, and as a journalist, and you know, I am a fan at the same time, when I go into the press box, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to have an extension of my personality, and as you just said that, build up a bit of a rapport with the players, the human beings, they have frailties like us, they have, you know, different personalities, you've got to find out what makes them tick. Some players just want to talk about tennis and their game, nothing off the car. Some players are very bored about, you know, talking about the actual tennis and, you know, happy to talk about things that affect them in their lives or things they're doing off the car. So show different aspects of the personality. Uh, and you've got to try and learn that uh, in quite a competitive environment where lots of people want to ask questions, lots of people looking for bylines as well. Uh, but if you can see something on the car, if you can see something in someone's personality, if you can relate to something that they've done or said and bring that to life, you know, and as I keep saying, take those chances, then sometimes it, it, it pays off. And uh, as I said, you know, not everything's going to work. If you keep plugging away, sometimes you get, in my case, what I call some real radio gold. Who were some players that you've had a difficult time cracking, whether it was just they were having a bad day at the office or, as you said, some players who aren't as keen to talk about or reveal their personalities? Are there one or two players where you've, you've tried to work a certain angle and they just haven't, you know, had any of it? Well, as you know, I've got quite a broad Yorkshire accent and so I'm always a bit self-conscious that our people understanding me. And I think once or twice I've just asked the question, uh, and they haven't particularly understood it, so they're just giving me a stock response. But I think that there are certain uh, players, either recently retired players or players still on the circuit, that are guarded because there's a bit of a mistrust uh, by the me or of the media in general. They're wondering if you're trying to work an angle. They don't always want to reveal too much uh, of themselves. They're one or two high-profile players where... I've gone in there with good intentions and asked questions which have either just fallen completely flat or you don't necessarily get anything from. You know, they're obligated by the tour organisers and, you know, in the case of Roland Garros, by the media team there 
to attend the news conference court for 10 minutes. Some people love it. Some are like, no, that Djokovic can spend 10 minutes just answering one question. He actually loves chatting. Uh, for some people, if English isn't the second language or they've been on the tour 10 years, you know, they've answered uh, every question. I think the biggest challenge for me and for most journalists on the tour is what to ask Rafa Nadal. You know, he, he just wins every game there uh, and he feels like he's answered every question. And even in the final, there's a bit of a joke before the final news conference where we say, right, Rafa, are you ready? And he basically says, you know, I've answered every question, but I'll answer it again. So, you know, that can be a challenge just insofar as, you know, he's one guy who at Roland Garros, you know, hardly ever seems to lose. But, you know, there are other people who you just see glimpses of the personality. Uh, and I'm, I actually really enjoy interviewing, for example, uh, Simona Hallett. You know, she always has a glint in her eye. She always gives very honest answers. Uh, other people say about Dominic Team isn't the biggest personality. When I look back at some of the interviews that I did last year in the media conference, some of the best responses and probably the best response I got were from Dominic Team. Uh, and after he lost the final uh, last year against Rafa Nadal, I overheard that when he came off the court, he'd said that he'd won the previous day, bit Novak Djokovic, which was an unbelievable win. Uh, and I heard in passing that he'd said it felt like within the space of 24 hours, he'd gone from tennis heaven to tennis hell. And I actually asked him what that felt like. And he gave such an insightful answer. And again, that was something that I saw covered everywhere. And that was the headline, you know. Dominic team says he's gone from tennis heaven to hell within 24 hours. So, yeah, I like a laugh. I like a joke. Uh, uh, but every now and again, you can ask a question. It just gets a great answer. Uh, well, some of them aren't planned. Uh, some of it, yeah, it's just good luck. And there's a time and a place, correct? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you've got to judge the mood in the room. You've got to judge the uh, the, the, the player uh, and just do your best and you know all the questions I ask you know are generally supportive of the players I never want to be overcritical you know I might spot something in a game or something about someone's temperament or personality that I want to ask them about but I never feel like uh, it, it's attacking uh, again another incident last year was Naomi Osaka who burst onto the scene you know had an unbelievable start to her career, you know, just didn't perform as she wanted to at Roland Garros, went into the news conference, very short and sweet answers. She didn't want to be there, and the approach from a lot of the people in the media was to persist with a line of questioning, where she just wasn't comfortable answering it. And I asked quite a benign uh, question, to be honest. It wasn't a particularly good one, or a particularly insightful one. It was just something that came off the top of my head, and I basically just said to Naomi, you know, what would make you feel better right now? And again, that just gave her the opportunity just to open up. And that's when she said, to be honest, the best thing I can do is just get on a plane and get out of here. And then she just spoke for a couple of minutes about how she'd been feeling over the last few weeks. She hadn't settled in Paris. She was missing her home comforts. She just needed to go home, regroup, 
you know, and, and just reassess some things. It wasn't a great question, yeah. but the way that I phrased it just gave her the opportunity to say what she wanted to say. Uh, and again, it was a bit of good luck, but, you know... Uh, yeah, we need that too, don't we? That was a great answer. Yeah, absolutely, every time, yeah. Don't get and because for every, for every great question you have, or I have, you know, it's always... Uh, tempered with the ones that we wish we hadn't asked or that you don't get that result but if you don't try you're not going to get anything right so I, uh, I I take the same sort of approach as you when I'm when I'm in a press conference and uh, you know if it doesn't work that's okay you shrug your shoulders and realize that maybe it's just uh, not uh, not their day and you move on to the next one um, if I can get back to uh, Sasha Zvera for a moment because I, I consider you one of the foremost experts on him uh, if not on the court certainly off of it uh, how have you witnessed him change over the two years you've gotten to know him, both in terms of on the court, uh, but also what he's like off the court? He's always been a very self-assured character, as we know. Some people have said that he's confident or arrogant, uh, and I was really pleased that the first few times I got the opportunity to chat to him at Roland Garros, he expressed the side of his personality that other people haven't seen before. Everyone knows he's got amazing tennis skills. That isn't in, in, in question. Last year was a difficult year for him off the court and on the court. He dealt with a number of things and put them behind him. I got the opportunity to watch him play at the ATP finals in London in, in December when he got through to the semi-finals. Looked like he was in good form. Then he started off this year again in a different form. He subsequently said that he feels like he might have had, you know, COVID-19 or coronavirus because his early season form was affected. Then, you know, he had a great performance, his best performance at a slam at the Australian Open, getting to the semi-finals. He was settled in his personal life off the court. He had a new management team uh, with Roger Federer's management team behind him in a stable relationship. you know, he's always had a good family unit. And so we thought, right, okay, is he building up a bit of momentum here? Yeah? And then tennis came to a halt. So it's, it's difficult to judge, really. Uh, you know, I've seen his personality up close. He likes a laugh. He likes a joke. Uh, he's got a trusted team around him. He's got a couple of uh, people on the tour who we trust implicitly, which is really good. As we said, he's now got stable personal life which he's happy to share with us all on social media which is uh, showing a different aspect to his personality so the question is really you know in terms of all the tools that he's got in his locker can he put them together you know and take it to the next level at the moment those questions are beyond us because we don't even know when we're going to see any tennis yet but uh, you know for the likes of Sasha's very Dominic team you know, Stefan has 60 pass, you know, Medvedev, that's the first time I've probably said his name correctly, ever. I kept getting pulled from that Roland Garros. You know, there's some exciting uh, players out there and, you know, he's definitely in the mix. I suppose the other question is whether, you know, this enforced break uh, has done a bit of good and might even sustain the careers of Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal because you know, after Roger Federer announced he was having uh, surgery, everyone says, well, that's it. He's going to be out of the top in the back part of half a year. He's going to slip down the rankings. It's now proved perfect timing. 
So uh, I've not answered any of your questions there. I've not answered any of your questions, but I've certainly thrown up a lot more answer questions for tennis fans uh, to think about. But, you know, we're all debating them uh, every week at the moment, aren't we? Ben and I were talking recently about if the French Open does indeed happen at the end of September, uh, beginning of October, uh, and who knows at this point really how likely that is, but what the different dynamic will be having that event held in the fall and having it held without the usual clay court lead up of the different five, six weeks or more than that even of, of clay court tournaments. How do you think that will impact? And you spoke about Rafa and his dominance there earlier. How do you think that might impact him? Do you think this might give those other younger players that you just mentioned as good an opportunity as ever to dethrone this guy? Well, I can't necessarily answer the question just because it's all still, you know, up in the air. I think the biggest, the the fascinating thing to me at the moment is what's going to happen uh, out in the USA. You know, we look at where the major tennis tournaments are held you know, Australia's been largely unaffected, touch wood, from what we can see externally. You know, London, Paris, New York, where Wimbledon, the US Open, uh, and Roland Garros are held, three major capital cities, are three of the biggest, you know, grand slams out there, and they're the tennis tournaments that are going to be affected. So there's talk that there's going to be a hard court season in America, with the Southern and Western players before the US Open. If that's the case, if the US Open does go ahead and we don't know under what circumstances it will, you know, know that Djokovic has basically come out and said he doesn't think a lot of elements are unpractical from a player's point of view. But will players have to make a choice between playing the US Open or Roland Garros? Is it practical for them to play at the the US Open and then travel to Roland Garros. You know, are players going to be allowed to travel? Will the media be allowed to go? Will there be some sort of opportunities to fan, for fans to go or play behind closed doors? So I'm not answering your question about Rafa Nadal, A, because I don't know, uh, and B, because I think there's just so many questions that we, we just don't know the answers to that. You know, I think if, if, you know, if the US Open and or Roland Garros go, goes ahead. It's just something that we just don't know right now. And one of the other big talking points I'm seeing on social media is what is the value in having major sporting events and you know tennis tournaments without the spectators? Uh, you know that's another big question. And uh, you know it'd be interesting to see what tennis fans think. You know whether they'd like to see the Grand Slams without fans. Well, whether they should only go ahead if, if fans are let into the stadiums. Yeah, I mean, I'll take whatever I can get at this point. I'm so starved for watching live sporting events. Um, it, it's great watching some of the old classics. And I saw the, the tweet of Bjorn Borg for his birthday you put out uh, yesterday with your matching outfit from the French Open. And I'm, I've watched some of those classics. I'm currently reading Pete Sampras's autobiography for the second time, which is fine, but, but it's nothing like watching live sports and, and seeing new history uh, being made. And so uh, obviously has to be done in a, in a safe way. And I don't know, we don't know if that's going to be possible or not, but whether there's spectators or not, I'll take, I'll take just about anything I can get. It's, um, it's going to be really sad um, from a tennis perspective. I mean, there's obviously bigger things going on in the world right now that are truly deplorable, 
But from a tennis perspective, when Wimbledon, uh, when the dates for Wimbledon do come up later this month, early July, that's going to hit me uh, as a tennis fan more than any other tournament, I think, because that's the one I grew up watching. I would imagine for you, obviously, being over in the UK and, and for your fellow tennis fans there, that's going to be a real tough one, too, knowing already that that's not happening this year. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you said, I, I grew up watching Wimbledon. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I go down every year as a fan, and I join the queue just like everyone else. And you know, it, it's an amazing experience. The, the only thing that we can take from that as Brits is, at the moment, we're just coming out of lockdown. Some shops are opening, and the first thing that you've got to do is queue. Uh, and as you know, everyone thinks that that's a bit pastime anyway so I won't be in the Wimbledon queue this year but I'll certainly queue in day in day out to uh, try and get in somewhere but yeah it's going to be weird to think that there's no uh, Wimbledon this year we are looking at staging uh, a, a, a domestic competition for some of the uh, up and coming players I think it's going to be called the, the, the Prospects Tour so it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds but yeah nothing uh, is going to fill the void for me of Wimbledon being cancelled this year of course. Are, are you hoping if the French Open does get held in the fall, are you hoping that you'd be able to attend if press and media are invited? Yeah, I've thought about this. Uh, and, uh, again, it's a tricky one. Obviously, uh, we've got to be healthy. It's got to be safe. Uh, there's got to be travel arrangements in, in place, which there are at the moment. The current regulations for the UK is that if you go out of the UK, for any visa, and it's very difficult to do that at the moment anyway, for any of reasons. You've got to self-isolate and quarantine for 14 days when you come back. I would suspect if uh, the media are given the opportunity uh, to be at Roland Garros this year, that it will be effectively pared down, uh, and they will only have a handful of reporters, and so you might have reporters covering for particular nations, basically. So on that basis, you know, I'm a one-person outfit working for a relatively small uh, radio station, if you look at the global uh, reach uh, of tennis. It's a bit of a busman's holiday for me when I go. So it might be that there are very few uh, opportunities for media uh, to go along, if any. Uh, and on that basis, I probably won't make that cut and I can completely understand why because I think uh, I've got to hold my hands up and say as much as I, I love it and enjoy it there's people a lot better qualified than I am uh, to, to, to cover it but if they want someone who can uh, yeah, liven things up a bit and ask a few left field questions if I, if I got the opportunity I'd definitely be there uh, I'd like to think that I could be there but I'm realistic, uh, realistic enough to, to know that you know it might not happen next year but uh, Definitely looking forward to like, getting back there sometime. Well, you have my vote, absolutely, and, and many of our listeners as well who enjoy when you stop by and breathe some fresh air into our podcast and change up the, uh, the accent, uh, the typical Canadian accents that we get over here. Um, and who knows, maybe if, if we can't attend it live, we'll see each other in a Zoom press conference uh, for Sasha Zverev, and I, I know your rapport with him will come across just as well there as it does in the real world. So... Uh, Hey, look, all the best, first and foremost, uh, as things do start to open up, all the best for you, your family and friends, and, and I hope people in Yorkshire are staying safe and, and being smart about it, as, uh, as here in Toronto, I sometimes wonder if uh, people aren't uh, you know, leaping ahead too quickly, but uh, it's great to talk to you again, John, 
Jonathan Pinfield uh, from Yorkshire, our favorite Sasha Zverev correspondent. And uh, thank you for stopping by and, and talking with me today. Thanks, Mike. It's always a pleasure. I know that you uh, get great guests uh, on the podcast every, uh, every time you do one. So I hope I don't disappoint too much. But uh, always good to catch up with you. Uh, yeah, we keep probably seeing each other that beer at Roland Garros sometimes. So, uh, yeah, you're getting the first round, you know, I'm a Yorkshire. I'm, I'm keeping my money, uh, yeah, in my pocket, but uh, looking forward to that drink. There you have it, Mike's interview with Jonathan Pinfield, Yorkshire reporter who uh, claimed to fame initially was uh, getting Sasha Zverev to laugh, and we would love for him to uh, visit Yorkshire and his community if that could ever happen, if they could ever bring a tennis tournament there. But uh, I I will miss... not seeing him, hearing him, I, I think, in press conferences from Roland Garros, uh, but fingers crossed if it were to happen late September, maybe he will have the opportunity to attend. Yeah, it's funny how a guy from Yorkshire is now synonymous with a tournament happening in Paris, but uh, that's, you know, that's where he made his mark. And he doesn't cover a ton of tennis tournaments live. You know, he doesn't get the opportunity to do that. He works for a smaller outfit and, and doesn't have the means to necessarily, you know, travel and go tournament to tournament. If he did, I think he'd build up such a wonderful rapport with so many players. I think he'd be a great fit as a regular on the tennis tour. And, uh, you know, to any detractors who, who feel that he's too um, personable or, or too friendly, I, I just say, like, especially in this day and age and everything we're talking about, there's a, there's a seat at the table for everyone. And I think, you know, diversity in the press room in terms of your, your approach is something that I really welcome. You've got people in a press room that, uh, you know, sit down and they just, they're grinding out their work and they're, they're maybe not as talkative or, or they take a more serious approach and that's fine too. There's a place for that. But yep. I think on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's, it's wonderful to have people like him. He puts everyone in the press room at ease from the ATP WTA staff to the uh, people holding the microphones, the stenographers who are typing away, it just creates a really warm environment. And, and that's the kind of press room I like to step into and uh, and it's really important that you allow players to feel comfortable so that you're not just getting cliched answers that we've all heard a million times before. So kudos to Jonathan Pinfield for doing that. And uh, it was great to have him back on this week to uh, lighten things up a little bit. We've also got to find a way to, to laugh. And, and, um, and I think it was just, you know, a welcome, refreshing voice to have back um, on the podcast this week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess before we wrap up, I, I wanted to share, I guess, a couple tidbits of news. It, it's It's been kind of slow in tennis uh, the past couple of weeks. You know, we, we had the week off, um, but in terms of actual tennis news, uh, things have quieted down a little bit. Uh, but I, I wanted to provide the update on the U.S. Open, which uh, – for all intents and purposes, they're, they're trying to make it happen. Uh, and they've stipulated some new protocols in, in terms of players getting tested two to three times a week if they're on the grounds, having to stay in airport hotels, and uh, just allowing one additional member with their team. So sort of no entourages. And Novak Djokovic has, has weighed in on these protocols, saying he thinks the regulations put in place by this is the USDA almost make it impossible to have this tournament uh, given that all, all the testing and you can only have one member of your team. And then he's getting his fair share of detractors saying maybe he's a little bit out of touch with how the rest of the tour feels. For example, British player Dan Evans uh, weighed in on this subject saying this is something that really only affects the very top players who do have their own fitness trainer do have their own physiotherapist maybe do have their own mental coach uh so 
is, is Novak Djokovic off base here, or is it a reasonable ex- expectation to say I should be able to travel to this Grand Slam tournament um, and have the team that I like to, you know, comprise around me like I usually do? Hey, none of us can travel with our usual teams through all of this, eh? whether we're right. a professional tennis player or just people like you and me, Ben. So everyone's entourage is a little bit smaller now. Welcome to the new world that we're living in. And it's going to be like that for the foreseeable future. So, uh, you know, whether it's Novak, Rafa or Roger, those three are so far removed from caring about like regular everyday tennis players that, um, you know, they're a little bit out of touch with with what the reality is that many of these players are facing. So Dan Evans, I think, had every reason to, uh, to speak up and, uh, and just remind us all that uh, most people are lucky if they get to travel with their coach to tournaments, let alone anyone beyond that occupying other roles for them. So look, if Novak or any other top player feels like they don't want to travel if they can't bring their whole entourage, well then, hey, better opportunity for everybody else out there to... Uh, to go and, and seize the moment. And if Novak ever took a stance where he wasn't going to go, well, if I'm Rafa or Roger, I'm making sure my ticket is booked and I'm there because it's so close between the three of them that you don't want to miss a slam unnecessarily. If yeah. you can, uh, you know, just get that extra one to give you a little distance or catch you up a little bit to your, your fellow competitors at the top of the game. So who knows what the context was when Novak spoke and, uh, I'd be very shocked if the tournament happened and he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Would you would you be applying any type of asterisk if we do get a U.S. Open and French Open this year? Are you looking at the 2020 winners of those titles differently at all? Mm, it's an interesting question. I mean, I guess it remains to be seen what the level of participation is like. Yeah. Uh, if you get if you get half the field that decides they're going to come to North America and do the Cincinnati U.S. Open thing, if that happens but then not be able to go or not decide to go and, and participate in, in Paris and vice versa. If we have kind of two factions that end up happening, um, well, then if the, if the field is reduced, then I suppose there would be uh, not an official asterisk, but in our minds, probably a, a way of looking at the results differently. But I mean, at the end of the day for players, all you can do is, is go and, and defeat the people, attempt to defeat the people that are in front of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, to make a parallel, looking at the NHL, if they get their playoffs off the ground in August, and if my beloved Montreal Canadiens end up somehow defying the odds and winning their 25th Stanley Cup, um, that'd be good enough for me, man. I'm not going to yeah. put an asterisk next to that. So if you're a Federer fan and a Dal, a Djokovic fan, and they win the U.S. Open, the French Open, you'll, you'll take that for sure, I think. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Uh, before we wrap, I, I know you are currently uh, reading a tennis book, Pete Sampras's book, and uh, you were sharing that on Twitter with your followers that uh, it's quite engrossing to read about uh, 14-time Grand Slam champ Pistol Pete, who for a long time we viewed him as the greatest tennis player ever. Uh, what's the book like, and what's, what's Pete like, I guess, behind the scenes? Behind the crew. So, so Pete Sampras in this book, his, his voice as an author, along with Pete Bodo, uh, who, you know, helped him out with it. It's very much what you would expect from him. He sounds exactly like what you would expect from back, you know, in his playing days and, and in, in press conferences and just that sort of subdued um, uh, approach that he took on the court. Nothing too flashy. That's how the book reads, too. Mm-hmm. And I'm really respecting that. And, and I've read this book before a number of years ago, but I wanted to get back into it one more time. And I'm just developing such a, a newfound appreciation for a player that I'll be honest, wasn't one that was in my group of favorites when I was a kid growing up. Um, but I've got such a respect for him because he just went about his work. 
He wasn't worried about being flashy or there was no controversies off the court, really. He just wanted to be the best tennis player he could be. And he made that his main goal. And uh, how can you not admire that? And, um, you know, he's talking in the book about how everyone was giving him a tough time about not showing more emotion from McEnroe and Connors to the media to fans of, you know, his chief rival, Andre Agassi. But uh, I felt for him, you know, I felt for the guy. And, uh, and I've got such massive respect for him after um, reading this now for a, for a second time. Um, what an era also it was, as I'm reading it, just to remember for American tennis on the men's side. I mean, I would say the women's game in the U.S. is very strong right now, but the men's side, they don't even have a player in the top 20 at the, at the current moment. But back then, you had Sampras, Courier, Chang, and Agassi, uh, who all had slams uh, fairly early on. Yep. Courier kind of came out of the gate with, with uh, the most at the start, which I forgot how he was the dominant one of those four in terms of slams uh, accumulated. But what an era for men's tennis in the States. And, and they had to follow McEnroe and Connors and other great players. So they had pressure on them to perform, and they, they totally did it. Uh, and then that got followed up with Andy Roddick, who, despite the fact he finished his career with just one slam, I would say he was a far greater player than, than just a one-slam type wonder. Um, but uh, American tennis on the men's side has definitely gone through quite a transition since those days. And, uh, and uh, right now they're waiting for someone to step up and, and, uh, and, and challenge, you know, the grand slams. And they don't really have that at the moment. But yeah. um, Pete Sampras, like you said, 14 slams. And at the time, you know, people wondered, would anyone ever catch him? And that was a, a legit question at that time. Who knew we'd have three who would come along and be so dominant. But uh, I don't think that takes away from Pete's accomplishments and, He's one of the all-time greats in my mind, and, and I'm, I've definitely been converted into being a, a fan of his from, from reading his book. And I should say that's one of many great tennis books. I feel like I haven't read enough, but uh, one I really want to dive into since I had the pleasure of speaking to him months ago is Winning Ugly, like the classic book by Brad Gilbert. Another one which is terrific obviously and he was the rival of Pete Sampras open by Andre Agassi a definite recommendation any others I suppose on your list that you haven't got to yet or you would recommend well first of all that Agassi book open um, my wife got me an autographed copy she went and stood in line here in Toronto when he was in town to get that for me for Christmas or a birthday I forget which one it was and and then I actually spoke with Agassi and Pete Sampras Uh, around the time that came out in New York City at Madison Square Gardens for a tennis exhibition they were doing there. And I asked Agassi how he had reconciled his feelings towards tennis in the years since he retired to now be able to do these types of exhibitions. And he stared at me and asked me if I'd even bothered to read the book. So, uh, okay, which I had at the time, but uh, anyhow, uh, read that one, have that one. Um, I've, I'm a big Boris Becker fan from when I was growing up. So I read, uh, his book called the player and uh, he's got another one out there that I haven't read yet. So I'm going to check that out too. And then, uh, one book just arrived in the mail today, actually, uh, I kid you not. And that's James Blake's book, how I lost everything and won back my life, uh, detailing the very difficult year with his, uh, freak spinal injury from running into the neck cord. Wow. Uh, the year his father also passed away. Um, and other challenges that he faced back then and, and was able to resume, successfully resume his career. So um, definitely looking forward to reading that one as I wrap up the Sampras book. But uh, 
there's so many of them that are out there. I'd love to read something on Steffi Groff. I don't know if she's got an official autobiography or not, but mm-hmm. I'd love to read something about her and, and of course, Serena as well. But I prefer when players wait till they're retired and their careers are all said and done. I find it kind of awkward sometimes reading someone's book when they, they've yet to hang up the racket like uh, Maria Sharapova's. It, it just feels like there's still unwritten chapters to, to make it complete on their tennis career. Yeah, certainly. I I know there is an Nadal book that came out years ago, and I wonder why did it come out then? He's still playing now and still at the top of the game. You you think, I'm sure we might see another one published. Uh, Another great book. This is a bit different. It's called String Theory. Actually, a very challenging uh, read. It's written by David Foster, a a terrific writer of various sort of different accounts of tennis stories, him talking about his playing career as a junior when he realized he he wasn't good enough and telling various stories of watching other players play, including Agassi and Federer and and, uh, Chrissy Everett, Tracy Austin. Uh, That's another great very difficult read, actually. Not autobiographical, though. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I guess to wrap it all up, because you mentioned James Blake, he did also pen a, a great article. I wasn't sure if it was in the LA Times or somewhere else, uh, because he had fallen victim to some racial injustice five years ago, actually, just outside a Manhattan hotel uh, when he was tackled to the ground by a plainclothes police officer so for those who are interested in that check out james blake on twitter check us out on twitter at matchpoint can you can follow me at ben lewis sn590 follow mike at mcintyre tennis and you can now follow us on youtube as well matchpoint canada where uh, i'm sure we'll be sharing our conversations uh, with francois abanda and your conversation with jonathan binfield absolutely and uh, in the meantime thanks guys for uh, checking in with us and listening this week Uh, continue to have those conversations, continue to post things on social media uh, about Black Lives Matter and uh, and the current state of affairs, both in the U.S. and Canada. Um, You know, do what you can and and not because you feel pressured to do it, but only collectively, I feel, can we start to make some real progress with this. And uh, thanks again to Francoise for joining us and, and shedding some light on that issue. And thanks to Jonathan Pinfield as well. And Ben, take it easy, man, and uh, looking forward to our our episode next week as well. No kidding. We will talk to you next time.